Hi everyone and welcome to this week's Memcast. Today I have Aisha Ernest, who's one of the uh, Jerry's registrars at Derby Hospital. We're going to be talking a bit about dementia. We're going to start by talking about what dementia is and how you diagnose it, a bit about its diagnostic criteria and how it's different from cognitive impairment. We'll also then go on to talk about some of the subtypes, its assessment and general management. Hi Aisha, thanks for joining us. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for having me. Do you mind telling us a little bit about what dementia is and how we um, diagnose it? Dementia is a progressive condition. It's a clinical syndrome. It's a better way to describe it. So it's a set of symptoms and signs which results in deterioration in mental function and it having an impact on your activities of daily living. So to have a diagnosis of dementia, you have to have the criteria cognitive impairment you have to have at least two domains for example memory language behavior or executive functioning and it has to have an impact on your day-to-day tasks such as your personal hygiene your grooming doing household tasks you may have seen some people being diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment you might wonder you know is that a dementia strictly speaking A mild cognitive impairment is when you don't quite fit into the diagnostic criteria. So, for example, you might have just one domain of your cognitive functioning affected or the cognitive impairment may not have a significant impact on your day-to-day living. Brilliant. So, in summary, it's the impact on the ADLs that kind of makes the difference between a cognitive impairment and a dementia. Yeah, And it's this common myth, especially in older people, where people think dementia is your normal part of aging. And it's not, actually. You expect to have a degree of being forgetful, but it shouldn't cause you to like leave the hob on or leave the doors unlocked, putting yourself in a vulnerable situation. So with dementia, can you tell us about the different subtypes that we classify dementia into? Yeah, so there are more common subtypes of dementia probably you've heard of is um, Alzheimer's dementia and that's the most common subtype. It affects 50 to 70% of people diagnosed with dementia. Features involve cerebral atrophy and the formation accumulation of amyloid plaques. In these affected neurons there is also a reduction in the production of acetylcholine which will have a role to play in the drug management in Alzheimer's dementia. Vascular dementia is the second most common. It affects 20% of people with dementia and that's usually to do with reduced blood supply to the brain. For example in cerebrovascular disorders you know people have had stroke With Alzheimer's and vascular, they can often coexist. You call that mixed dementia. The next most common subtype would be the Lewy body dementia, 10 to 15% of individuals with dementia, which is a result of the deposition of Lewy bodies in the the nerve cells. Often, you know, you get in your exam question, is this a Parkinson's dementia or is this a Lewy body dementia? I think one of the features of Lewy body is you get the Parkinsonian motor symptoms and they often get the cognitive symptoms and hallucinations quite early on. So within a year, then that's Lewy body in Parkinson's dementia, you often have the motor symptoms and that 
cognitive decline and usually happen afterwards. So if features of dementia develops after a year, that's when you're more likely to have Parkinson's dementia. And then the fourth subtype of dementia is the frontotemporal dementia, and that affects your behaviour and personality. Brilliant. Thank you. So when you are assessing patients with these different subtypes, what sort of investigations or assessments do you make to determine what type of dementia they have, or indeed if they have dementia? You have your history, you have your examination, and you think about what investigation that you want to do that would help with the diagnosis. Often in hospital environments where we normally see patients, you suspect some sort of cognitive impairment. And often what was very helpful is to get a history. I appreciate doing your own calls. It can be very difficult to spend the time and take a history and get collateral. But that's what we do quite a lot in the DME wards, so the geriatric wards. We do a lot of talking to the patients, any specific symptoms and how it affects their day-to-day. And often we also get a collateral from someone who's close to the individual. It could be family, could be neighbours, be friends. Just to get a better picture of what's been going on, if there's any concerns. There are some things we can do in hospital, but the usual pathway would be if you're suspecting someone might have dementia is to go through the memory clinic, which offers more specialist assessment and they provide the follow-up if they need drug treatment. But things that we can do in sort of the hospital environment, like I say, is to get a good history with any patient presenting with a problem. In people with Alzheimer's, there's usually impairment of episodic memory, not remembering recent events. There might be some repeated questioning and some difficulties learning new information. The signs that suggestive for vascular dementia would be difficulties in planning and organizing, following steps like how to cook. They have difficulties making decisions. You think their thought process might be a bit slow, problem concentrating. With quite a lot of the dementia, I think I was just bring out the point that it's usually quite insidious and quite gradual, the onset as well. With vascular dementia, there's often a stepwise increase in the severity of the symptoms. For example, if someone's got significant quantitative impairment and they just had a stroke, you might be suspicious of stroke-related vascular dementia. Often you continue to have sort of little infarcts and every time these episodes happen, they might have a further deterioration in your cognitive function and usually you get a history of they'll be stable for a while and then something happened and then they have this short period where they become more confused and not quite back to how they were. With Louis body dementia, you get a fluctuation in attention and alertness and it, that varies from day to day. Time scale and the onset will help distinguish it for delirium because delirium is quite an acute onset compared to, you know, when Lou body dementia, you have that gradual onset. And you may find that they also have Parkinsonian motor symptoms like your rigidity, bradykinesia and sometimes a tremor. Memory impairment may not be as apparent in the early stages of Lewy body. And with your frontotemporal, it's usually the personality change and behavioural disturbance. For example, apathy, social, sexual disinhibition. Their memory would be relatively preserved. 
So there are different features that can help you distinguish the different subtype. In Alzheimer's and vascular, as I said before, this, the symptoms can overlap and it might not be obvious during the earlier stages of what subtype it could be. But then you will have to go through again how long has this been going on and quite often and not when you pick up the phone and maybe the person you know not able to tell you how long it's been going on and so that's why getting someone close to them to also have a chat with them will be very helpful because they often can notice this deterioration over several months and I have to say though obviously the difficulty we've got with the pandemic it's been quite difficult to get that history because a lot of people who are close to the person that you was expecting to have underlying dementia have not seen them for months. So then we're not quite sure how it's progressed and how it's been affecting them in day to day. And, you know, when suddenly seeing them, they're not quite the same. And it is quite an unfortunate situation to be in where we are at the moment with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So the clinical assessment is, is quite heavily focused on the history and the collateral yes. history. Um, have you, do you use any tools, any questionnaires that can help risk stratify the patients with dementia? Yeah, there's quite a lot of validated standardised tool that you can use. Obviously, the ones that we're familiar with would be the MOCA the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, um, your mini mental state examination, that's too quite you know, common and quite easy to do. I'm not sure whether you've done the Addenbrooks one. I remember doing that as a med student and that was quite a long one to do and quite complicated. So they, I'm glad they had new tools. And I know the GPs, they have their own because they only have a certain amount of time. And I think they have screening tools that they can use. If there's any concern, then they can refer on to memory clinic for a more detailed assessment. So when the patient gets to you in the memory clinic, what investigations would you consider they're in? So I think apart from the clinical history, this is also important to looking at the past medical history because the risk factors such as cardiovascular risk factors like diabetes, hypertension, that increases the risk of getting dementia. Family history is more sort of the genetic element to some of the more rarer young onset dementias. And also your drug history is actually quite important because it will help you, you know, if someone presents to you with this confusion and that something's been not quite right for some time is to look at the drug history. And that would be to look into any medications like your benzodiazepines, any medications with anticholinergic effects, some medication for continence like oxybutynin, your tricyclic antidepressants that's got an increased cholinergic burden and can lead to cognitive impairment and your opiates, morphine or even codeine, anything that can potentially make memory problems worse is worth looking at and see whether there's any alternatives. In terms of other investigations they might consider in a memory clinic would be you do your routine bloods, you can check your confusion screen your B12, your TFTs, because conditions such as B12 deficiency, timing deficiency, associated with venicus encoplopathy, Korsakoff psychosis, hypothyroidism as well can present with mood disorders and memory issues. And I've, I've had a patient where it was just this many months of 
having memory problems and she's known to have hypothyroid it turns out she wasn't having her medication and that's obviously something reversible is getting her to take her medication and hopefully well, the cognition will also improve other investigations you may want to consider or you might consider in memory clinic is a ct scan or an MRI. MRI is usually the first line, but we all know how it's not as easy getting an MRI than you would getting a CT scan. Now, it's not essential in making a diagnosis and can be helpful in diagnosing a subtype of the dementia. You might find evidence of cortical atrophy or hippocampal atrophy in Alzheimer's. With an MRI, especially, you can see evidence of old infarcts which may lead you to suspect it's more vascular process and vascular dementia. Brilliant. And so once you've made your diagnosis and you're confident the patient has dementia, how would you go about managing them? Obviously, it's a, it's a diagnosis. It will have an impact on the individual and their families. It's helping them to come to terms with the diagnosis. There's a lot of information that you can provide them Alzheimer's Society is a great resource for the information that I could think of about dementia. There's access to support groups, counselling, cognitive behaviour therapy, if the diagnosis of dementia is associated with a degree of anxiety, depression. With people with dementia, they found that um, having group activities where it involves stimulating cognition, like co- it, we call it cognitive stimulation therapy, has been proven to be beneficial is more sort of the general well-being and stimulating them and hopefully improve their symptoms. I remember working in a dementia ward in Doncaster and having to do my ward round every morning, sat doing bingo with my patients because they did constantly having activities. And reminiscent therapy, you know, get pictures of how life was, you know, back when they were young or what they used to do is, is again, like it's general well-being and it can have some improvement in your cognition. And it's also it's a, way in a, a way for you to appreciate that person with dementia. They're not defined by their dementia. They, they're still a person who's had a fulfilling life and it's just appreciating that as well. There's cognitive rehab as well, which is quite personalised to the individual involving specialist therapy and it's done in their own home and it helps them achieve goals that we may not think is a big deal but for them breaking an activity into steps will help them retain this sort of skill so for example just getting dressed or cooking that will allow them to to remain independent at home for longer that's what is quite important to them is to be able to stay independent for as long as possible now, there are drug treatments in dementia. The drug treatments usually is for Alzheimer's dementia, or you can use it in mixed dementia where Alzheimer's is one of the dementia. It's to do with, as I think I spoke earlier on, about the reduction in the acetylcholine production. And the drugs are acetylcholine erase inhibitors. So you've got your dinapazole is the most common one that you often see, rivastigmine and also galantamine. And I usually use that in mild to moderate Alzheimer's and it's supposed to help them with the mood, motivation. 
the memory and improve the concentration. But it can cause some side effects like nausea and vomiting, and it's contraindicated in those who are known to have arrhythmias or known to be bradycardic. If someone doesn't tolerate that, then you have memantine, which is an MDA receptor antagonist. And it can be used also in severe Alzheimer's disease and it improves the symptoms. I think I used to be I was like, why would you continue on when someone's Alzheimer's had progressed and so severely? The consensus is to continue it because it provides some improvement and may also help with behavior. To continue it for as long as possible. Obviously, if in the later stages where the swallowing can be affected, then we have to reconsider that. And I suppose the other important thing for some of the dementia patients, especially the ones that have difficulty with the sequencing, is um, whether or not they're still driving. Yes. If someone's got a dementia diagnosis, is um, their responsibility to inform the DVLA. With most people with dementia, it affects them very differently, especially you know in the early stages where we can't assume that they can't drive just because they have a dementia. I think providing them with the information and you know, explaining to them how the dementia can affect them and you know, obviously at some point they won't be able to drive. Um, it will become a question of safety for themselves and others on the road. And it's involving them in making an informed decision and making them, you know, trying to try to have a discussion about how the dementia will affect them. And I think while we're on the topic of involving the individual, I think I won't go into detail about your MCA, mental capacity assessment. It still happens, but not as as common now where people see the diagnosis of dementia and then they get the consent form for, you know, like I think it's just getting that appreciation that everyone's dementia is different. Just because you have dementia doesn't mean you, you don't have capacity you go through the process of a discussion of whatever it is that you're making a decision on, involving them as an individual with their own wishes and your own thoughts, and then coming up with what is best moving forward. I think that's one of the key things I want whoever's listening to take on board is um, hoping to change people's perception on dementia. Like I said, it affects the individual differently. Everyone has different family dynamics. So unfortunately, it will have an effect to those around them as well. And in treating them as a person as opposed to as a person with dementia, realizing that they're a person with their own life that's going to be affected. Yeah, brilliant. That's a really, really important point. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I think that's been a really thorough overview of dementia and its different subtypes and how we'd investigate it. So um, thanks, everybody, for listening and joining us for this week's Memcast. Thank you. Um, We'll see you again next time.